Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, host of Free Exchange and editor of CapEx. On Monday, Philip Hammond stood up in the House of Commons and declared that austerity was coming to an end. But beyond a massive amount of money for the NHS that we already knew about, the budget was fairly light on big announcements. That said, it would be a mistake to dismiss this year's main fiscal event as unimportant. What it lacked in major new proposals, it more than made up for in political significance, with a Conservative Chancellor effectively giving up on balancing the books. To make sense of fiscal Phil's pronouncements, I sat down with three eagle-eyed Westminster watchers and CapEx contributors. So I'm here with James Hayward, Senior Researcher at the CPS. Hello, James. Hi, Ollie. Madeline Grant, uh, Editorial Manager at the IA, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Scott Korf, Chief Economist at the Social Market Foundation. Hi there. So to kick things off, I'm going to ask a very simple question to all of you, um, starting with Scott. Is austerity over? Well, in terms of where spending is now on the latest forecast compared with earlier, but where before um, austerity is over, the Chancellor's committed to spending a lot more money. Um, all of all of the extra gains he's got from um, uh, the tax revenues coming in a lot better than expected are, are going into more spending on the on the NHS more or less. So, in that sense, austerity is is over. Um, the Chancellor has sort of abandoned his plans to balance the books. Um, he is spending a lot more money, um, and he's also had some room in the budget to have some sort of tax giveaways with the the increase in personal allowances, uh, both it's 12,500 and also the, the higher rate thresholds of rising to 50,000. Um, so he's had, had room for that as well. So in, a, in this sense, there has been some loosening of the purse strings. Um, of course, in Labour's eyes, there is still austerity going forward. Um, there are real terms, cuts in other departments beyond healthcare. Um, so there, there will be a lot to grow on whether it's enough of an ease of austerity. But in my, in my mind, it is uneasing. James? So yeah, I think I broadly, broadly agree with that. Um, the OBR knowingly uh, have put some nice graphs in their um, report which sort of strip out the NHS spending from the rest of it. Um, and so if you look at that, the um, real spending per capita over the spending forecast period is basically roughly flat. Um, it's just that it, it goes, if you look at overall spending, it goes up a little bit, but that's because that's being driven by the extra NHS spending. Um, and obviously, in terms of the actual news from the budget, the NHS money was actually announced in June. Um, so the real news from the budget was not uh, the spending, it was, it was how it was being paid for. 
um, because the question beforehand was essentially how much is the where's the chance that you can get the money from is you can put taxes up um, and the answer was essentially a bit of an anti-climax because it's essentially all been done through changes in the in the forecast for tax receipts and we've learned that if he does have a decision to make between raising taxes uh, uh, not spending more or abandoning his targets it's the third one he's gone for in the sense that he's decided we won't be balancing the books um, quite when we thought Madeleine was there yes um, I, I, he, I mean we're he very much announced a departure from austerity and a, the speech was predominantly announcing new forms of spending including most obviously the you know the big extra 20.5 billion annual increase for the NHS um, and yes I think the, the point that James made about once you take away the NHS spending is a very interesting and important one the um, the IFS actually had some stats out I think yesterday suggesting that with this real terms increase um, come 2022, 2023, the health service will account for something like 40% of public service mm. spending. So we're going to be living in a state that increasingly resembles a kind of giant health service with a few other functions attached to it. So that does represent a, a departure and certainly not the kind of reform of the NHS that many in increasingly across the political spectrum are calling for. Um, and I guess within the Chancellor's speech there was a great deal of policy announcements that involve spending very little detail about how any of that would be paid for. Do, do you guys think there's a risk that the Chancellor having announced, well he didn't announce any of austerity, did he, the, the Prime Minister did, but having sort of stuck to that, um, James as you mentioned outside of healthcare you know austerity is arguably alive and kicking so is there a problem politically do you think in that people would have if anyone's paying attention to these budgets, people will have heard that austerity is over, but you know, um, there's still there's still plenty of benefits cuts that are working their way through the system, uh, even with the universal credit money. So, and you know, the, the, the people in charge of public services that were complaining to voters at the last election that the schools don't have enough money and, and so on, you know, that reality will still exist on the ground, and so the Conservatives will be sort of in no man's land. Well, I think the Conservatives are in a, a tricky place for many of the reasons you just mentioned is um, there will be people saying austerity hasn't ended in, in these areas beyond healthcare. And I think the other issue here is the, the chances forecast could very quickly unravel. He's, he's got this extra money to play with at the moment. The tax receipts are coming in stronger than he initially expected. Um, but there could be another recession in the UK. Statistically, you would expect some kind of economic downturn over the next five years. Um, so his, his forecast could very rapidly unravel. And of course, a lot will depend on what happens with the Brexit negotiations, what kind of outcome we get following that. Um, so he might find himself in a position where he doesn't have as much money to play, play with. He might have to raise taxes. He might have to uh, rein in spending a bit more. Um, so I think there's a lot of fragility in these figures. Yeah, I think... The one thing to note is that the, if there's one person who is very aware of that is Philip Hammond, uh, and you know he's like I, I, as far as I can gather, um, if it had been up to him, he probably would have liked to have pocketed a bit more of the uh, extra headroom that he was given by the OBR um, to essentially giving himself a bigger what he would see as a sort of Brexit war chest. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting that he's uh, the Treasury have been really careful with the um, various spending and tax decisions that they've made to make sure that they're 
fiscal headroom, so the difference between what the deficit's going to be in 2020 and the 2% deficit target that they've set themselves for that year, is exactly the same as it was in March, um, despite all the spending changes and things. Um, so that's the Chancellor saying, you know, yes, I'm, I'm using some of this money to ease up, but I'm still keeping myself a little bit of uh, space because um, I think Philip Howland's very aware that uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead and we don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. And of course, there's also, you know, the very simple matter of the economic cycle as well. We don't know where we really are in that at the moment. Um, and it's possible that we could see a bit of a downturn in the coming years, in which case all of the forecasts go out of the window. Yeah, the OVR figures that are released as part of the budget are um, pretty uh, tepid. They're one point, the, the forecast for growth in the next five years are sort of 1.4, 1.6, kind of, that's kind of the, the range. But that assumes, basically, we get, I think, they just, what do they describe as the median outcome in Brexit, which I think pretty much actually means what the government wants. It means a deal with the EU. Um, it assumes that, it assumes no downturn. So, you know, even if everything goes relatively well, growth isn't looking great. Um, and of course, things could go south very quickly. Um, so in that sense, are you all sort of frustrated that there wasn't more, there wasn't a bigger growth agenda in the budget? I mean, he, he mentioned those figures and then kind of moved on to, to other things. Mm. Well, I, can I just quickly come back on the point about austerity? Yeah. Um, I think what's, what's interesting about austerity is that I feel like, in some ways, the Conservatives suffered all of the bad PR of austerity, but by attacking particular departments particularly hard, but leaving other areas of public spending completely untouched, meant that there wasn't actually true austerity in the meaningful sense, but that some particular groups felt the burden particularly harshly. So essentially, they got all of the, the bad bits of austerity, i.e. the unpopularity and so on, and none of the fiscal benefits. Um, and, and now I think there's a danger that... It, so, it, sorry, just on that point, do you, do you then think they should have... You know, there was too much ring fencing. There was yeah, too much. Absolutely, I think there was partic there were particular privileged groups in society, like pensioners, who were basically there was a policy of pretty much outright favouritism shown to those groups. If you're young on benefits, and you you felt the cuts, uh, and it, you know, to pretend it was anything other than uh, opportunistic vote vote mongering is you know is is, is a flat out lie, um, and it means that some people felt austerity particularly harshly, and others didn't feel it uh, feel it at all really. Uh, but that overall, yeah. So, the, so yeah. Basically, they um, they 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 did not get. They got the PR negatives of austerity without the sort of economic benefits. Um, and I think there's also a danger that now in going back on austerity, um, that it paves the way for a kind of public spending arms race that they can never beat. They can never win against Labour. Just on that point, I think. Um Clearly, I think clearly Philip Hammond is aware of that because in the budget it was interesting in the way he, he couched austerity. His, he basically tried to offer a conservative version of ending austerity, didn't he? And clearly one of the big dividing lines he's trying to establish is we, they'll raise your taxes, we won't raise your taxes. And for us, ending austerity also means kind of building a dynamic economy and, and so on in a way that... Whereas Corbyn and McDonald in this caricature are just take your money, spend it on stuff, um, people. Mm -hmm. Though I think on the the tax point, uh, part of the Conservatives' problem is at the moment is they're kicking quite a lot of the difficult decisions down the road, um, particularly on, I think, social care. Is mm -hmm. There's still no real answer about how that's going to be funded in the future. That will probably require 
some taxes to rise in order to fund it. So it's, it's quite disappointing that we still don't have any firm answers on that. Um, and that is probably something that Conservatives will have to address before the next election. So that, that is a tax rise that they will have to talk about. Um, I think the other thing that's quite disappointing is there hasn't really been much talk about improving productivity in the public sector. So there's been this huge spending increase announcement, um, but we know public sector productivity growth has been very dire since since the 1990s. So there's been hardly any productivity growth at all. And I think as, as Madeleine was saying, there hasn't really been much talk about how this money is going to be spent in a particularly productive way. Mm -hmm. um, whereas there should be lots of interesting things to say around how we can use new technologies to make public sector much more productive, how we can get these efficiency gains. Um, and that's something I think the Conservatives should be talking about more, particularly if they want to keep uh, taxes contained. Yeah, health is obviously a big area where that's, I mean, because it's such now such a huge, huge chunk of, of, of public spending. Yeah, and, and the government is always um, noticeably keen to make sure whenever it talks about this that the money is supposedly contingent on um, the NHS coming up with a firm plan to increase efficiency and productivity, um, although obviously in reality, you know, the political environment means that yeah. they're, they're not going to actually withhold the money. Um, and unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened when the last chunk of money was committed. Um, I think, to be fair to the government, um, and sort of bringing this round to your question from before, Ollie, about should we be disappointed that there's not more of a pro-business, pro-growth drive coming out of the budget? The budget wasn't ever intended by the government to be particularly big um, because they've got the massive spending review coming. Um, but my understanding is essentially that the Treasury's already, for a while now, been working on what it's going to be doing in the 2019 spending review. They were pr pretty much happy if this budget went by with them getting a couple of nice headlines in... Uh, in the newspapers and sort of setting the political, political agenda for a couple of weeks um, and not having any slip-ups, sort of omni-shambles style. Um, but in terms of the kind of big, um, you know, if, if, the, if there's any kind of big post-Brexit vision that is going to come out, um, I suspect that we have to wait until the spending review next year. Yeah, certainly that most of the big announcements felt like sticking plasters, didn't they? they and, and the biggest of the sticking plasters... Um, well, maybe you could argue the NHS money was was that too, but the most sort of politically explosive thing that they tried to deal with, um, I would argue, is universal credit, uh, which did get a fair whack more money. Uh, I think not as much as some people would have wanted, um, but what does everyone think about about specifically that issue, that that spending pledge, and, and whether that's kind of enough to? salvage the policy uh, if that's not putting it in too negative a way yeah I don't I don't claim to understand the entirety of the workings of universal credit but then I think no one really does including the government so um, I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a great idea but it didn't have the money it needed to function and I hope that it's enough I, I honestly I couldn't I couldn't answer that question of whether it will be enough but I think I'm glad that they are sticking to the principles behind universal credit which I think were very noble yeah, I'd probably echo that view as well. I think um, I think it's interesting if you actually look at the um, some of the stuff that the OBR have said in their report that when you factor in this new change, the uh, I think the uh, the forecast spending for the universal credit system is now expected to be slightly higher than it would have been under the legacy system. Yeah. Um, so essentially, that that's sort of reversed what 
had happened as a result of um, the changes that uh, Osborne introduced in the um, 2015 summer budget. Um, and I think the Resolution Foundation report this morning sort of estimated that um, that now about 75% of those cuts from 2015 have been reversed. Um, obviously, some of that's offset by things like the benefits freeze. Um, but in terms of the actual universal credit system itself, um, it's, it's certainly very positive that the government is aware of the fact that, you know, these the, it's... If, if they've got spare money that they find down the sofa, um, a very good way of targeting it at the just about managing people mm-hmm. that they've said that they are on the side of is by and if, uh, and if, the UC. On universal credit, if they can avoid kind of disasters with the rollout of it, which obviously has been, it's not just a question of money as well, there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's other questions there. Um, it does put the politics of welfare in quite an interesting place, actually, because you have... Uh, if what you say is true, James, about the generosity of this scheme versus the the legacy scheme, obviously, obviously, there's, it depends who you are, right? So the net of, yeah, across the, the yeah, yeah, but um, but nonetheless, it does put us in an interesting place if the Labour line is just scrap universal credit because you know what is the Labour view of welfare and how it should work? It's something they were very quiet on in the. Uh, last year's manifesto and you know it's a good arguably if I'm being sort of if I was a conservative MP I want to be really optimistic about things I could say there's a glimmer of hope in terms of painting Labour as basically the party of sort of middle class hand uh, and and universal handouts and and the conservatives are something more intelligent than that does that is that a sort of absurdly optimistic point of view from the right or do you think and do you think Tories will always be seen as mean on universal credit or do you think they can turn that around I think that they may I think they will always have amongst perhaps amongst people who are kind of centre left they will always be the meaner party Uh, and to the centrist they may be the kind of you know a bit like the roundheads and the cavaliers you know like right but what's it wrong but romantic and that like um, I think that the conservatives will never be able to shake that off entirely but I think they are tapping into a great deal of public feeling here in that often if you speak to people who are on low incomes and in work, they have you get some of the most passionate opposition to long-term welfare recipients. And I think a system that does not, you know, needlessly trap people in into not working through a, you know incredibly inefficient and complex and stupidly designed system is something that lots of I think you'll get lots of unexpected fellow travellers that will come along for that. Scott, do you think that? I think one of the, I mean, I agree with a lot, a lot of what you said there is that Conservatives are perhaps presenting a more coherent view of welfare of the future. I mean, the, the area where they will keep coming unstuck is on working age versus retirement welfare, where you've got this triple lock state pension scheme that Conservatives are very reluctant to get rid of. Um, so there is this lack of coherence here in the protection of pensioner benefits. We know pensions have done very well relative to all younger age groups since the financial crisis. Um, so I think it's very hard for the Conservatives to have a completely coherent view of welfare unless we do something about this big disconnect between working age and retirement benefits. And of course that's one of those very frustrating things if you're in Westminster where you, where everyone kind of knows that's true but no, because of the politics uh, being in such a sort of fr- fragile place, you know, no one's willing to mm. really grab, you know... Um, Grab the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, to be fair to the government, 
Um, they <laughs> did. That time you said it. I'm sure it had. I'm sure it is. But <laughs> they, uh, you know, they, they, there were some, some. There was. A, they sort of tried to make a start on on that the issue that that Scott was just raising um, in t- the 2017 manifesto. And the problem was that there was a bit of a um, political backlash against that um, from both within and outside the party. And the result of the election meant that. Um, that's just become impossible, and they have had to abandon most of that. Um, and it's, you know, it, I think a lot of the it's the same with that. It's the same with the the NHS stuff as well. That unfortunately, whatever Philip Hammond would like to be doing, um, he is severely constrained by the political climate that he's in, and the fact that the government doesn't have a particularly strong majority. In fact, it doesn't have a majority at all. Yeah, I think any government that proposed any kind of fundamental reform of the NHS in this environment would have to have one hell of a mandate and one hell of a you know persuasive team of people ready to argue that point. Um, and you know, to be fair to the government, um, <laughs> you know, they're doing the best they can, but I don't think they are the, the kind of radical reformers. Nor do they have the kind of well, they don't have a majority in Parliament. They don't have the kind of mandate that would be needed to create a, to bring through a big change like this. And it's politically toxic. Even people who vote conservatives are still very wet, vote conservative are still very wary of kind of changing anything fundamental about the NHS. Yeah, I mean that was obviously the, the logic of last year's um, disastrous Conservative manifesto. Was you know we're gonna we're not gonna write a manifesto to win the election. We're gonna write a manifesto to solve all the problems <laughs> yes. that we see. I mean I would you know I'd argue lots of those bad solutions to those problems, but nonetheless, now that's why we are um, yeah. where we are. Um, and one area that didn't really come up in the budget that's a, that's a big policy focus supposedly for the government is housing. Um, why, why, why does the, the panel think that that did not rear its head? Well, I think it, it comes back to some of the, the sort of real political issues around housing and who the Conservatives vote to base are and sort of the views that some of the Conservative MPs represent. Um, so it all goes back to this problem of nimbyism, like do you build on the green belt, do you not build on the green belt? Um, lots of re- resistance to house building in in a lot of conservative areas. Um, um, so I think the politics still makes it very difficult for the conservatives to make real progress in this area. Yeah, um, I th- I I think that fundamentally the Conservative Party. Well, obviously not everyone in the Conservative Party. I think we are. If anyone attended conference, I was there with with the IEA. There was seemed to be a great appetite amongst. Some quite unexpected people for reform of the green belt. So I think that there is some progress being made in that area. Um, but in the main, I think that fundamentally the Conservative Party has, or even the right wing generally, has bought a kind of left wing narrative about the cause of the housing crisis and how, and how to fix it. So you've heard Conservatives in speeches, uh, Theresa May demonising like greedy land bankers and developers, foreign buyers, all these very convenient scapegoats for the, the housing crisis rather than attacking the problem at source, which is this extremely dysfunctional planning system. And I think in accepting a kind of left-wing diagnosis of the housing crisis, at the same time, they haven't really, they don't really believe in the power of the market to deliver housing on any grand scale. You know, they've forgotten that before the advent of the Green Belt, we were able to build, the private sector was able to deliver um, hundreds of thousands of houses every year on a scale that was completely unimaginable today. So I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's a real lack of belief in the free market. And although the nimbyism is a really important point, I've noticed a, a kind of a sea change in the last couple of years alone. Um, but I think yes, there was a real there was a real absence of policy on housing. We had well, Theresa May announced her policy about the cap on council building, 
Um, aside from that, there was some minor relief on stamp duty, I think, and there was, I think, a reform about building on, making it easier to turn high street shops into houses. I mean, these are very minor tweaks in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately the answer to why was there not, you know, uh, a significant effort on housing is it there was a particular narrative that they were going for with this budget and housing wasn't part of that. Um, there are times when housing is a huge part of the narrative for the budget and, you know, Osborne had his We Are The Builders um, um, catchphrase and all that sort of stuff. What that, a time that was. I, indeed. Um, simpler times. But the... the <laughs> The narrative of this, of this budget wasn't that at all. It was yeah. essentially, you know, um, we're putting more money, money into the NHS, we're cutting people's taxes a little bit, we're easing up on austerity. Um, but I think if they, if they were going to make any major um, housing announcements, and certainly we've been doing lots of stuff for CPS about that, and had hoped that there might be some, um, and had possibly heard some good signs, but uh, nothing came out in the end. Uh, but uh, I suspect that if they have got any um, plans for that area, then they'll probably save them up and sort of um, put them out in a time that has been, you know, as governments do, uh, and it has, has been sort of strategically planned. I think one of the other, perhaps one of the other reasons for some of the silence on housing is the government doesn't really know what to do with help to buy going forward. Is there's a lot of pressure from the house builders for this scheme to basically continue indefinitely. I don't like help to buy. Help to buy. I don't think any economist really likes the scheme. Um, I think it could be storing up a number of problems for government. But there is there is this addiction to help to buy in the house building sector now, and there are huge question marks around how the government's going to walk away from this scheme, how how it could potentially unravel. So I think that's part of the reason perhaps for some of the silence is the government really doesn't know what to do with how to buy in the future and how to bring that scheme to a close if that's what they want to do. And the economic, just to spell it out for listeners, the economic case against help to buy is that it essentially it inflates prices without, yeah. and, and that most of the extra value gets captured by, yeah. by the builders basically. Um, and that's fairly uncontroversial economically, is that? Yeah, I mean yes. you can't stimulate yeah. demand without stimulating <clears throat> supply at the same time. <clears throat> And not end up with scarcity. Uh, and, and so let's move on uh, to another big area, which is the um, this this big tech tax that um, Philip Hammonds has announced, uh, which uh, is arguably one of the more eye-catching things in the budget. Uh, it's completely new. Um, well, it's not a new idea in the sense that it's been kicking around for a while, but it's it's something that would be very very new if it were introduced. Um, how does everyone feel about? Does anyone want to explain how this? Hammond proposed this tax to work. Anyone in a position to do that? I'll give it a go. Um, okay, go on then, Madeline. Okay, so it's 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 not a tax on customers. It's a tax on businesses, and we know that those ta- those costs will never ever be passed on to consumers. Um, it's <laughs> I can hear a slight <laughs> sarcastic tone. In no, your voice. no, no. <laughs> um, I think it's called the digital sales tax, and I think it's a, a tax of two percent of turnover rather than profit. I believe mm-hmm. of large. They want to isolate particularly large tech giant firms like Amazon rather than small online retailers. And this is basically something that Philip Hammond's announcing, essentially in case the international equivalent, which everyone hopefully will sign up to, kind of doesn't work out. He's sort of saying, we're not going to wait for the rest of you, we're going to do it on our own anyway. Um, and this is, I mean, this is pure politics, isn't it? Uh, in, in, in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I... I that's basically how I would sum up the measure. I think it, it um, 
the best way I think to sort of explain it is that people in government and in the Treasury like to have answers to questions um, and lines to take. Um, and this is the answer to the question, what is the government doing to make sure that big international tech companies like Google and Amazon are paying their fair share towards pu public mm -hmm. services? Um, that's, I mean, it, it, the amounts that are being raised from it are really quite trivial. You're looking at sort of a couple of hundred million. Um, so I think ultimately this is really a political move. And it's so that when they're you know, asked the question in interviews or in the House of Commons, when they're preparing for oral questions and all that sort of stuff. This is the go-to answer. That's, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, I think, yeah. But the funny thing is it's also quite an, it's quite a sort of revolutionary thing in terms of how British tax works because they're taxing... Um, Turnover, which, Revenue, is, yeah. which yeah. is which is a new thing, really, isn't it? I mean, it's not something we do. Uh, is that something we should be worried about, um, or is that fine? I mean, is that just the reality of? I think we should be concerned because the history of taxation shows us that measures that are often meant to target one particular group or meant to be temporary end up targeting everyone and being permanent. There's always mm -hmm. that danger. Um, yes, I do think that the move to taxing turnover is, is something to watch. Um, I also I, I completely agree with James's points about it being a kind of quite a political narrative. The other element to it, as well as the, the answer to the perennial question of what are you doing about the Wild West tech giants, is the kind of what are you doing to stand up for the noble beleaguered high street in this time mm. of, of upheaval mm. for it. Um, rather than reforming the business rates regime, which is, is quite outdated, I think it's... Um, and it's you know rather than reforming the way that they levy those taxes, there's an element of trying to they say level out the playing field. But to many of us, I think it looks an awful lot like trying to pick winners. You know, essentially, some of these firms have devised an economic model that allows them to buy pipe to sorry to bypass a lot of the costs associated with having a kind of being a bricks and mortar outlet. And some would say that, that that's a more efficient way of doing things. To me, it's analogous to having you know, a swimmer who invents a great new breaststroke that allows them to shave seconds off the, their record speed, only for the organisers to then point to them and say, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's kind of, it does seem an awful lot like the kind of picking winners that we've seen already with the government's industrial strategy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I agree with quite a lot of those sentiments. Um... I mean, I think that there are some huge questions to be asked about the market power of the tech giants and you know, whether you might want to split up the tech giants. There are, there are these very complicated competition questions. Um, but I think one thing's quite right is that how does this fit into the productivity narrative? It's part of the high street's failings is but it's the fact that you've got a lot of retailers, large and small, that haven't really adopted new technologies and become more productive and manage their costs efficiently. Um, so maybe the Chancellor should have thought a bit more in the budget about how you encourage these firms to adopt these new technologies and become more productive. I think that's one of the, um, just present some of my own views for a second, one of the frustrations of the, the government's economic policy making in general is it, you know, it, a strategy by definition is something where you, you look at um, options and you consider trade-offs and you go down one road, not the other. And on lots and lots of economic policy making to do with how to build a product, productive economy, um, you know, the government basically doesn't refuses to. It makes decisions on specific policies, but there's no broad brushstrokes. Brit, the British economy is going to look like this. You know, we are going to be the economy that embraces technology and doesn't tax uh, doesn't tax um, these people. You know, we're going to. It's yes, it's tough, but we're going to say to people that. The high street isn't going to be there forever because technology is changing. You know, I'm not saying that necessarily should be their approach, but you know that is one option. Yeah. And you know either you can be that kind of um, that kind of government, that kind of policy making, or you know another yeah. example is: Do you want to boost um, left behind parts of Britain, or do you want money to go to the most productive parts of the economy? There, there is a trade off there, yeah. and the government sort of needs to make its mind up, doesn't it? Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I also think that. You have two options there as well. I mean, on one hand, you can either, if you think that that digital companies, online companies, have some kind of competitive advantage, is is the best thing to saddle them with more tax and potentially more regulation, or is the thing to look at what is holding back high street businesses from functioning? And there are all sorts of government regulations that make life needlessly difficult for the British high street. And there's also an awful lot at the local council level that makes life difficult for. The high street, including you know, like incredible, they often raise incredibly high parking charges on cars, and they make it a really torturous experience to go and shop in a high street. You know, these things are also worth mentioning. But it's as you say, it's, I, I don't like having a government that basically says, "Well, it's up to us to fix this." Maybe the the, the correct solution would be to look at existing laws and reg- regulations and potential obstacles, and think about how you can actually make life more, you know, make life easier and more sort of functional for. Uh, for bricks and mortar retailers, uh, and, and, and on that and, uh, and other issues, you know, is James, you said a lot about about how the Treasury's view is basically let's kind of get through this. The spending review is coming, and that's understandable in one sense because obviously the spending review is the time to rethink how public spending works. But but is it is it excusable for a government given this kind of crucial? We are at a very important moment politically and economically for Britain, and the government is sort of running out of time if it wants to pass policies that you know are actually going to work through enough that people actually feel the benefits on the ground. 
mm. on, say, a subject like housing. Um, you know, is it, and, and obviously the threat of the opposition is, is not just a sort of benign centre-left party, but a, a quite radical um, uh, Labour Party. You know, is it excusable to sort of not to have such narrow horizons, um, given that landscape? No, I mean, I, I think it, while it's understandable that the government is, is, is essentially been, is, is sort of allowed itself to be, to an extent, buffered by what it feels the, the political pressures are, um, it, it would have been nice to have seen them taking a bit more of a bold stance and putting more into um, a, a comprehensive plan for productivity. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing... Um, in the the growth figures um, yesterday uh, was that the, the there was a uh, very small um, upgrade in the um, the GDP figures for the next couple of years, which the Chancellor sort of painted in a very rosy way in, in his opening remarks. Um, those are largely down if you if you um, look at what the the OBR have said. Those are largely just down to them changing their mind about how much employment can go up. And the issue with our economy for the last 10 years essentially has been that all of our growth effectively has come from more people working um, and people working more hours and very little of it uh, has come from productivity growth and that's not sustainable in the long term. Um, And while I think Philip Hammond does recognise that, it would have been nice for him to have done a little bit at least um, to to put a bit more into uh, addressing that issue because... Effectively, that that sort of economic news yesterday was that um, you know the, the government will be pleased with it because it means that the employment goes up a little bit more and that they're sort of that that one good news story that they have had for the last couple of years, which is the jobs figures, goes on a little bit longer. Um, but that's just sort of kicking a can down the road because ultimately productivity is going to be the key to everything. Scott, as an economist, you obviously agree mm. with that final sentence. Yeah, I mean the. The growth, the growth forecast, the chance. The, I think the chance, the word the chancellor used to describe them was robust, but these these, <laughs> these, these really aren't robust. We're talking about growth, growth never getting above the two percent per year mark over the forecast horizon. This is all well below historic norms. Um, productivity growth remain weak. Wage growth remaining below pre-crisis norms as a result of that low productivity growth. Um, I think George Osborne talked about a march of the makers, more exports, well net net trades. Is actually a drag on growth over the forecast horizon. There's, there's not actually that much good news in, in the forecast beyond jobs. Um, and in that sense, it's, it is very disappointing that there is this lack of a, a strong growth narrative, a strong productivity narrative, and I think a real failure to, to grapple some of the really meaty issues of our time, such as reforming the education system, um, you know, better adult education, more... Mm-hmm. Retraining for all, for all, for older people. There is talk about this national retraining scheme, but there's much more that could be done beyond that. Um, so we're we're really failing to grapple some really huge issues um, at the moment. Do you think one of the reasons the chancellor wasn't so keen to to, to discuss growth and be the kind of mm. we are the growth party uh, is because then you become sort of too much of a hostage to fortune in terms of if something really terrible does happen next year, then the you know, then politically, well, you said you were the growth party and, and you aren't. So. I, th- I think that is part of it. As I said earlier, I think statistically there might well be a, a downturn over the next few years. Economists are terrible at predicting when a downturn will occur, but it's 10 years on since since the financial crisis. As far as these cycles go, 
it's quite likely there will be a downturn before the next election and that that will have huge political and economic implications for the Conservatives. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I agree. Um, I think that given, as you say, we are something of a hostage to fortune, I think it was perhaps a mistake to prematurely call for an, an end to austerity. Uh, and I think not to have something in reserves for... I mean, essentially, what I haven't seen, we've yet to be given the full spending review, but it does look rather like there was a kind of unexpected windfall, which has already been spent and already been committed. I think retaining some of that for, you know, not that I'm advocating Keynesianism, but, you know, for potential... Yeah, 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 advocating Keynesianism. No, that did, not, that did not just happen. But, um, but yes, to, you know, to... Yeah, to, to, to not float along on the off chance that, on the assumption that growth will continue... Um, to grow, albeit sluggishly. It was telling, wasn't it? Or maybe I'm reading into it too much. That Theresa May in in Birmingham in her conference speech said austerity is over. Philip Hammond said austerity is coming to an end. Yeah. Do you think I'm reading? Is that a significant <laughs> no, no, no. I, I read exactly the same thing into what he said, um, and I think that yeah, m- much as with the the NHS announcement in June, I suspect that the uh, the this new line on austerity is. Possibly not something that's been dreamt up in the Treasury and is more a number 10 thing. I think that is um, hard to disagree with, yeah. certainly. Um, so I'm going to um, uh, wrap things up with a incredibly mischievous, unfair, single yes-no answer qu- uh, question, which is, do you think this was Philip Hammond's last budget? Just, a, just I know p- political predictions are pointless, but again, a yes-no answer. You can explain if you want, but if not, then... No, I certainly hope not. <laughs> um, I'm going to say no. He seems to be in quite a strong position where he is. Strong. No, I think he's, he's going to be quite hard to remove for the time being. Ah, well, on that you know, incredibly encouraging uh, <laughs> uh, note, uh, we'll leave things there. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.